This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of suicide, death, domestic violence, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts or feelings, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-273. 8255. On September 18, 1932, a woman was hiking near the Hollywood sign in Los Angeles. She spotted something odd a woman's jacket, shoes, and purse sitting at the foot of the 44 foot tall H. The woman checked the purse for ID. Instead, she found a note. It read, I am afraid. I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. P.E. Alarmed, the woman frantically searched the area, hoping she might be able to find the woman in time. But as she scanned the hillside for movement, her eyes landed on a body already lying in the ravine below. Police recovered the body and ran the story in the local paper in hopes of IDing the deceased. It was the dead woman's aunt and uncle who put the story together. The body belonged to the promising actress and fledgling Hollywood starlet, Peg Entwistle. Two days earlier, Peg had told her uncle she was going out to run errands and meet a friend. Instead, she had climbed the service ladder of the Hollywood H and thrown herself to her death. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. This week, we'll take a look at Peg Entwistle, a 24-year-old ingenue who succumbed to suicide just as her career was getting started. While Peg is most famous today for haunting the Hollywood sign, she should have been one of the Golden Age greats, alongside peers like Betty Davis or Elizabeth Taylor. While Peg is often painted as a desperate young woman crushed by her inability to break into Hollywood, the real story is much sadder. Peg Entwistle was born a continent away from the hot lights of Hollywood in Port Talbot, Wales, 
on February 5, 1908, making her British by birth. Her given name was Lillian Millicent Entwistle, although she preferred nicknames like Babs and Peg from the time she could talk. Her father, Robert, and her mother, Emily, had gone to Wales to be with Emily's family for the birth of their daughter. Once mother and child had recovered, the trio returned to the family home in West Kensington, London. Peg was born into a secure middle-class family with important connections to the theater world. Both her father and her uncle Charles were successful in British theater, which was some of the most prestigious in the world. They both adored Peg and doted on her constantly. Peg's mother was less supportive. When Peg was just two years old, her parents divorced. While there are few details about the divorce, family archives indicate that Mrs. Entwistle was unfit to raise her daughter. Robert was reasonable, though, and made sure Peg continued to see her aunts and grandparents on her mother's side. Robert also made sure Peg was exposed to culture. He and his brother Charles landed important acting roles in a celebratory variety show honoring the coronation of Britain's new king in 1911. All of England's best actors were invited to perform, and important dignitaries from around the world attended. So did three-year-old Peg. She was delighted by the costumes, lights, and fancy parties. Those who knew her credited this experience with sparking her love of theater. Peg's beloved uncle soon migrated to America, where he was growing a career managing theater talent. There, he met his wife, Jane. When they crossed the ocean for a visit, Peg, who was still a toddler, took an immediate liking to Jane. Jane was a fiery woman in her 20s. Progressive for her time, she made her own bloomers and pantsuits, could ride horses and hunt, and was a successful actress. Peg adored her and often mimicked her confident, joyful disposition. Meanwhile, Peg continued to love theater. She was known to gather an audience at family events to do small performances of her own creation. She often quoted theater she'd seen with her father and did impressions of actors and actresses. Robert wanted the best life he could provide for his daughter and was looking for a way to increase his own theater opportunities. He decided to join his brother Charles in the States, where Charles was having excellent luck as a stage manager. So in 1913, the family moved to New York. This transatlantic boat trip must have been exciting for five-year-old Peg Entwistle, who loved adventure. She intended to watch her aunt and uncle's shows when they were in New York and to cash in on her Aunt Jane's promise for horseback riding lessons at their house in Ohio, where they lived when they needed a break from the hustle and bustle of the Big Apple. Once in New York, Robert immediately became active in theater as both a stage manager and performer. Peg was taken to as many shows as she could convince relatives to bring her to. Given that the family lived near Broadway and three of the adults in her life worked in theater, she got to see quite a few. As Peg's interest in theater grew, Robert's shrunk. He loved the stage, but the hours were long and he wanted to be home with Peg. He began saving the generous money he made as a stage manager to open his own business. In 1914, less than a year after arriving in New York, Robert opened a specialty shop in the wealthy part of New York, selling custom boxes and gift packaging. His business was a huge success. The new influx of money allowed for Robert and Peg to have frequent visits to both the theater and to visit Uncle Charles and Aunt Jane in Ohio. Those visits led to another happy addition to Peg's life. Her father married Jane's sister, Loretta, in the summer of 1914. Six-year-old Peg had a new mother and could not be happier. Loretta was kind and treated Peg like her own. Soon, there was another baby on the way. For a few years, life was good for the Entwistles. They welcomed two sons into the family, and Peg began attending school. She continued to eat, sleep, and breathe theater and constantly bothered her aunt and uncle for acting tips and feedback. 
1916, when Peg was eight, she convinced her father to give her his small collection of scripts. In addition to memorizing and reciting roles for any audience she could corner, Peg delighted in playing director and assigning roles to anyone who would play along. Meanwhile, her uncle Charles and Aunt Jane had temporarily moved west to California to try to make more money in the budding film industry, renting a small cottage in Santa Monica. Charles, who was already well-connected in both British and American theater, was quickly adding film to his resume. These connections would later pave the way for Peg's career. Robert's gift wrap business continued to succeed, allowing the family to move to a nice neighborhood in Manhattan, near Broadway. Peg was ecstatic. Now she could attend even more shows. During that time, Peg attended a play called Peg of My Heart with her aunt and uncle. She adored the production and started insisting everyone call her Peg. She'd never cared for Millicent and often had family call her Babs. Peg finally stuck and would become her preferred stage name. In 1920, at 12 years old, Peg finally had her debut. She starred in her school's production of Peter Pan. Peg outshined the other students by a long shot. Nearly 10 years of attending theater, practicing lines, and asking her family of professionals for feedback had given her a leg up few children had in acting. It only encouraged her to pursue a career in theater. Acting had become her vocation. But Peg's joyous childhood was coming to an end. That year, Loretta came down sick. Initially, doctors thought the illness was routine. But the illness soon transformed into pneumonia and then into bacterial meningitis. The family held out hope. But on April 21, 1921, Loretta passed away. At barely 13 years old, Peg had lost the woman she considered her true mother. In addition to bringing devastating grief, the loss of Loretta meant that mothering and household duties now fell to Peg. Her brothers were much younger than her, and realistically, it would be 15 years before they'd be grown and out of the house. There was no way Peg could pursue a Broadway career if she was caretaking full-time. Still, she was a good girl, and the loss was new. She trusted her father. They would figure it out. Things might have been okay if that had been the end of their troubles, but fate had a much darker path in store for Peg Entwistle and her family. In the winter of 1922, Robert Entwistle stayed late at his shop preparing Christmas season novelty boxes. He left around 10 p.m., walking home alone. He was struck by a car, a hit and run causing multiple serious injuries, including broken ribs. A well-meaning couple moved him out of the road, but doing so likely made his injuries worse. They took him to a nearby hospital, but the facility was underfunded and lacked the proper equipment and staff for his complicated injuries. The hospital transferred him to another location, and for a few weeks, it looked like he was going to be okay. But Robert must have had his doubts. He called Charles to come be with Peg and the boys, and drew up a new draft of his will. Just before Christmas, he died suddenly of a hemorrhage in the brain, likely caused during the accident. In fewer than 18 months, 14-year-old Peg buried her second parent. The children were now orphans. They could be sent back to family in England, but Peg would be forced to be a mother and a nanny to the boys. She'd also have to live with people she barely knew on her mother's side. Charles and Jane had never wanted children. They both knew that having kids would mean the end of Jane's robust theater career. But they loved Robert's children, and they knew the fate awaiting orphans. Within a matter of hours, the couple made their decision. They took in the Entwistle children and moved them into their Ohio home. Fortunately, Robert had been a wise businessman and had left behind a decent life insurance policy as well as assets from the business. But with a family of five, Charles needed to bring in more money. 
They didn't want to rip Peg away from her roots on the East Coast, but at the same time, Charles knew there was more money in the booming film industry out West. A new housing development was putting in single-family homes to attract out-of-state buyers. As part of their marketing, the developers erected a 50-foot light-up sign that read Hollywood Land. In 1923, Charles and Jane decided to make their move out west permanent. The family moved to a new bungalow on Beechwood Drive, just below the new sign. In addition to helping with the financial situation, the couple hoped the move would help Peg cope. The teen was struggling. That summer marked the beginning of the dark moods that would eventually drive her to suicide. She was still shaken by the loss of her parents and was likely suffering from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. The previously chipper girl became quiet and reserved and hated being left alone. Peg was also dealing with the social stigma of being an orphan, even though her aunt and uncle took her in. On top of that, she had trouble socializing with her peers and missed the familiar world of New York theater. It didn't help that Peg also had a thick British accent. While this had been all right in multicultural New York, the Los Angeles children bullied her for it. As a result, Peg resisted all attempts to send her to public school. One day in the summer of 1923, 15-year-old Peg came across an advertisement for a private school. In the promotional image, students practiced horseback riding, a pastime Peg loved to share with her Aunt Jane. Eager to see their girl bounce back, Charles and Jane agreed to send Peg to Bishop's School just outside of San Diego for her remaining few years of high school. Peg regained some of her bright spirit, enjoying her studies and the horses, for a few years, it seemed like she was back to normal and relatively content. But Peg was ambitious and never lost sight of her dream. She was going to be a professional actress and took every acting class she could, including community theater classes in Hollywood over the summers. Peg had grown up in the theater crowd, and she knew talent wasn't enough. She needed a network, and she needed a powerful name behind her. She had to get into the best acting school in the nation, the New York Theater Guild School. As high school graduation loomed, so did the biggest question of Peg's young life. Was she good enough to be admitted to the prestigious acting school back east? It was the first true test of whether or not she could make it. For a 17-year-old who had already lost more than her peers or even the adults in her life could really understand, this one audition consumed her. In a moment, Peg meets her first career challenge. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to our story. At just 17 years old, Peg Entwistle had lived a life of both unimaginable privilege and unfathomable sorrow. While this witty blonde beauty had a combination of family support and rare access to the theater elite of both London and New York City, she had also lost both her parents at the tender age of 13. Peg struggled with melancholy and likely clinical depression caused by these formative losses. But she fought to keep her life on track and her dream front and center. She took advantage of her uncle's contacts, practiced constantly, and pushed herself to gain admission to the prestigious New York Theater Guild School. Getting in was only the beginning. The school admitted around 700 students each year. After a one-month weed-out process, only 100 would be asked to continue. By the end of the year, only 20 students, or about 3% of the original class, would be asked to graduate. 
those who graduated were contractually obligated to work for the New York Theater Guild for a period of one year at a starting salary of $50 per week. Peg thought this was a grand idea. If she could graduate from this program, it would show how serious and talented she was, giving her a leg up at auditions and in theater circles. The salary was also competitive for novice actresses and helped guarantee employment. Plus, Peg was eager to get on stage. Getting into the Guild School was her one and only goal. And she said as much to one of her uncle's colleagues at a party in the late spring of 1925, right around her graduation from high school. Henry Jewett was one of the most important names in East Coast theater. Peg knew that and spoke to him candidly and intelligently of her plans. Jewett was impressed with her. Shocking Peg and Uncle Charles, he invited her to join his well-established Boston troupe, the Jewett Players. An established troupe leader inviting an unknown actress to join a major company was unheard of. Even so, Peg was hesitant to accept. While the troupe was prestigious, it was in Boston, not New York. It could grow her name in the northeastern United States, but wouldn't have the same international pull that the New York Theater Guild School would. On the flip side, competition would be lower, and Peg would be actually acting in the fall, as opposed to having to wait a whole year while undergoing a conservatory program. Peg also wasn't certain she needed the full Guild curriculum. She had been running scenes with her retired but successful aunt for years now, and had taken formal classes for several more. Many of her classmates at the Guild School would have no formal training and need basic instruction. Still, the Guild name was better regarded. The decision tore her apart. Peg's decision finally made itself when she found out she'd be working alongside A-list stars, including Blanche Yurka and Emma Dunn, if she took the job in Boston. She could get a top-notch, personalized apprenticeship while racking up credits for her resume. She told her uncle what she wanted. Charles supported her, but warned her that the path would be tough. She would be offered advice and critiques she would be expected to take graciously, even when it was wrong, and to work long hours as a professional. But none of this felt daunting. Quite the opposite. The idea of long nights in the theater thrilled her. Decision made, Peg asked her uncle to go with her to sign her contract and intent. He refused, but kindly. This was her decision, and as a new professional, she needed to represent herself. Peg did, signing on to the fall season of the Jewett Players. The director gave her a list of 22 plays he expected her to learn by heart before the season opened. Peg was astounded and delighted, reportedly exclaiming that she already knew 21 of them. When the director later asked her uncle for confirmation, he agreed. Jewett was again impressed. That summer, as she awaited her first stage job, she learned the unfamiliar Snow White script while practicing every second she got. Peg had another stroke of good luck in 1925. Her Uncle Charles' good friend, Walter Hampton, was producing a New York production of Hamlet with a world-famous cast. He wanted to know if Peg wanted a small walk-on role. The story says that Peg locked him in a bear hug when he asked her. Hampton laughed, making sure Peg understood she'd have no lines, no contract, and her name would not be listed in the playbill. Peg didn't care. She was going to be on a real Broadway stage with some of her acting heroes, then start work with the Jewett players. This was the best year of her life. So in October of 1925, just two weeks before her contract in Boston started, Peg performed as a background extra in Hamlet to an audience of 1,300 people. At 17, she was officially a Broadway actress. And her success would only grow. She boarded a train to Boston later that month, and the real work began. The Jewett player schedule was demanding, though not unheard of. 
Peg typically rehearsed and performed from 8 a.m. to as late as midnight, six to seven days a week. Often, she was responsible for two roles in two plays at the same time, so the theater could offer multiple shows in the same week. While Peg was a talented actress, she also wasn't perfect right out of the gate. She had an amateur habit of crossing in front of other actors and upstaging them. Once, another more senior actress grew so frustrated with Peg that she ad-libbed stage directions into their exchange. Peg, oblivious, missed the cues. To teach Peg a lesson, the other actress changed the blocking so that Peg showed her back to the audience, a huge faux pas in theater. Peg took it in stride, however, and always recalled the incident fondly, saying that she appreciated the lesson. It was a mistake she never made again. In between the shows, Peg was also learning how to interact with the theater world elite. She'd gotten a taste of this growing up with Robert and Charles, but now it was her life. She was expected to attend galas, perform for charity, and entertain visiting dignitaries. The troupe was also involved in some cutting-edge programming for the time, including a contract to have several performances a week broadcast for radio. Peg was delighted that she wasn't just acting on stage, but also in people's homes. She quickly gained a following and was soon doing radio shows twice a week in addition to her theater duties. Peg was working herself to the bone, and it was paying off. She received positive reviews in the papers, and the company's star, Blanche Yurka, took to mentoring Peg personally. This was a demanding blessing. Yurka worked her students hard, but she often turned them into stars. By December of 1925, Peg was already seeing results. She played one of the lead roles in the popular intellectual play Wild Duck by Henrik Ibsen. Ibsen was a late 19th century writer who is often credited as the father of modern drama. His roles were demanding and complex. Peg knocked it out of the park. Today, some say her breakout role was a prophecy. In Wild Duck, the young protagonist is so overcome with grief at the loss of her father that she kills herself. But at the time, the role was nothing but sunshine for an ecstatic Peg Entwistle. Not only did she get rave reviews, but a young future star, Betty Davis, cited Peg's portrayal of Hedvig as her teenage inspiration to go into acting. Peg turned 18 and continued with a demanding but successful theater season as show after show hit audience and critics' support. She was flying high, and the busy days blurred together like one long, joyous performance. However, the grueling 14-hour days, seven days a week schedule eventually caught up to her. Peg could have stayed on with the Jewett players indefinitely, but she wanted a rest and to pursue her Broadway dreams. The summer of 1926, after an extremely successful debut season, she returned to New York City. Peg had planned to go west to Hollywood for a few weeks to visit her family, but another opportunity came calling. A British comedy called Man from Toronto desperately needed a blonde woman with a good British accent. Peg fit the bill. The schedule wasn't kind. The cast had already rehearsed for two weeks, and the preview performances were set for just a few days after Peg had been hired. Peg, ever up for a challenge, wasn't daunted. She learned her role professionally and impressed her fellow actors. Unfortunately, the show fell flat. The script just didn't play well with American audiences. However, critics noticed Peg. Wherever she went, she brought life and charm to her roles. Still, Man from Toronto only ran for a handful of performances. Peg was used to excelling, and this show was limping at best. She was worried she'd squandered all the momentum, talent, and potential she'd worked so hard to build. Luckily, another opportunity came through. Just as Man from Toronto was ending, another play called The Hometowners had lost several of its actresses when moving from Chicago to New York. 
George M. Cohan, a theater legend, had held auditions in both cities, but still hadn't found the right woman for a small supporting role. It's likely that her uncle Charles arranged the meeting, but Peg's reputation, personality, and audition sealed the deal. She was cast and absolutely soared during the 70-performance run, garnering positive critical reviews from nearly every theater reporter. This was the performance that finally launched Peg to her Broadway dream at just 18. Everyone who was anyone saw her stunning performance in The Hometowners, leading to an offer for the lead role in the brand new show, Tommy. The situation was unheard of for a relatively new actress. Peg was the only woman asked to audition for the part. The producer was so impressed that he gave her the role outright. Rehearsals began in November of 1926. After just 10 days of rehearsals, the company went north to Atlantic City, then Boston to do a trial run. Peg was astounded that when her character first came on stage in Boston, she was met with uproarious cheers. The city remembered and adored her. She was so overcome that she stumbled for a moment to recall her lines. It was a great problem to have. She nailed her performance to an absolutely enamored crowd. The show was going to be a Broadway success, and Peg Entwistle's adoring fans couldn't be more supportive. Two months later, on January 10, 1927, Tommy opened on Broadway to a packed theater. Peg was no doubt nervous and excited. She was a few weeks shy of 19 and had already achieved her childhood dream. She was a Broadway star. Tommy repeated its Boston reception and was wildly successful. Peg stayed on for four months, stepping down only when the production began its national tour. She had hit the big time now and didn't want to leave New York. She wasn't wrong to do so. Peg had been so good at her role that even after she left the production, national newspapers ran her photo to promote the piece. Everything in Peg's life was coming up daisies. She was talented, employable, beloved, and now a recognized Broadway star. Unfortunately, that was also the year Peg would meet Robert Keith and begin her downward spiral. Up next, another dark turn for Peg. And now back to our story. Peg Entwistle was an unheard of success. At just 19, she nailed every role she'd been in, even when the plays had bombed. Now, she'd become the face of America's hottest new Broadway show, Tommy, so much so that her face was used for promotional materials even after she left the show. Peg was also making $250 a week, or $3,600 today, five times the salary a starting actress could expect in addition to 1% of ticket sales. She truly was a star. Unfortunately, that success was about to hit a bump. In April of 1927, Peg met actor Robert Keith at a party. Ten years her senior, he charmed her with his appearance, wit, and success as a stage actor, as well as the intrigue of an older man. After a single date, Robert proposed. Peg agreed. And just four days after meeting him, she married Keith on April 19, 1927. 19-year-old Peg was private about the whole affair, but the papers found out and ran the story. The headline read, Peg Entwistle marries after four days of wooing. Actress and Robert Keith meet on Thursday, engaged on Friday, and wed on Monday. She later sent a letter to her Aunt Jane apologizing for not telling the family before the wedding, but expressing no specifics about the relationship other than her decision to keep her own last name. Many of Peg's friends and future historians alike asked how a hard-working, grounded young woman could have possibly participated in a reckless four-day courtship. There are a few theories. First, Robert Keith was a successful fellow actor and quite handsome. Peg had grown up seeing successful actor-actress marriages and how they boosted each other's careers, like her Uncle Charles and Aunt Jane. 
However, Peg had no previous relationship experience and knew most marriages had a longer dating phase. She may have been eager to appear grown up by getting married or may have been enticed by the desire to have sex since sex outside of marriage was still deeply frowned upon. These were fairly normal behaviors for a teenage girl, but Robert Keith was 10 years older than Peg. He should have been more aware of the reality of relationships and certainly shouldn't have proposed to a teenager after three days. Although that might have been the plan all along. Popular opinion is that Robert was unstable and manipulative and that he preyed on Peg for her naivete and money. This theory is supported by the fact that he willingly misidentified this marriage as his first on legal paperwork, and that his mother helped cover up his previous marriage. Within weeks of the wedding, Peg found out that Robert not only had a previous wife, but a six-year-old son he had failed to mention. Furthermore, he was an alcoholic. Initially, Peg forgave him assuming that her husband had simply forgotten in their whirlwind four-day courtship. However, she made it very clear to him that she did not want children and that he needed to stop drinking. Robert did not stop drinking, and in the fall of 1927, Peg became pregnant. Peg was mortified. She had seen Aunt Jane give up her acting career for children and was terrified that the same fate awaited her. So, Peg did something else unheard of in 1927. She got an abortion. At the time, performing an abortion was a felony for doctors and extremely risky for women. Many did not survive the procedure. But Peg refused to give up her career for an unwanted baby. In fact, she was back on the stage the same week as the procedure, frail and exhausted, but as determined as ever. Peg still longed to be a part of the New York Theatre Guild, the most prestigious theatre group in the States. The Guild was invite-only, and she'd been working extra hard to catch their attention now that she was a named star. She probably also hoped that her connection to Robert, a celebrated actor, would help her chances. Peg's planning and hard work paid off. In April 1928, the couple was invited to join the Guild for the 1928-29 season. On their one-year wedding anniversary, Peg and Robert both signed their contracts. They would travel for a year, stopping all over the United States, then perform one show in New York City. If they did well, they'd be re-signed. Peg was on cloud nine. Sadly, the victory was short-lived. Weeks before the company was supposed to leave New York, Peg and Robert were enjoying lunch at a fancy hotel. They were interrupted by a policeman looking for Robert. Peg found out that Robert owed an astounding $1,000 in back child support for his son, or nearly $14,000 today. If he didn't pay up, he would be arrested. Peg was horrified at the thought of what it might do to her reputation should her husband end up in jail. To avoid scandal, Peg asked the Guild for a loan to cover Robert's expenses. This was the beginning of three years of marital-related career and financial anxiety. Probably feeling sorry for the sweet-hearted 19-year-old, the Guild surprisingly complied, but only under the agreement that the loan payments would come out of Peg's checks, not Robert's. It's suspected that the Guild took pity on their young starlet, knowing the public nature of her complicated marriage. Sadly, things didn't get any better from there. Robert was chronically drunk and often abusive. One night in their hotel, he grabbed Peg by the hair and shook her. The hotel detective overheard Peg screaming and had to break up the fight. There were no real domestic violence laws to speak of at the time, and Peg was aware that any more trouble she and her husband caused could lead to her losing her guild contract. Always the professional, she nailed performance after performance on the road, even as her relationship grew worse. However, her marriage had a terrible long-term impact on her mental health. Colleagues reported her withdrawing socially and losing her chipper attitude. 
she often grew depressed. Worried about Peg and about the bad publicity Robert's behavior could cause, the Guild fired Robert in the winter of 1928. Peg knew she was on thin ice, too. She worried that the Guild had found out about her abortion. Plus, Robert was known to show up drunk and intimidate her at performances, making her a PR risk and safety liability. In the spring of 1929, just after their two-year anniversary, she filed for a divorce. Robert missed the court date, and Peg was awarded her request. But under California law, the divorce would take a year to be legal. So she spent the next year in constant fear that Robert would show up to her performances and block the exit until she talked to him, something he had done on several previous occasions. He could repeat this behavior while she was on the road since her itinerary was public. What was worse, about half her colleagues received requests to renew their contracts with the Guild. While Peg was clearly one of the most talented and hardworking troop members, no renewal came. She knew why. Robert's behavior was just too dangerous for the Guild to risk. Until the divorce went through, he was still Peg's husband. At 20 years old, she had risen to star status only to see those opportunities crumble around her through no real fault of her own. It was devastating. That was the first summer Peg's thoughts publicly turned to suicide. Friends recalled that she became reserved, barely talking and even making comments about how easy it would be to climb the Hollywood land sign behind her aunt and uncle's house and throw herself into the canyon below. Her friends talked her down, a new theater gig came up, and everyone forgot about Peg's dark suggestion. They thought the problem had passed. For the next two years, Peg went through a relatively normal cycle of show work and short periods of unemployment. The Great Depression had hit in late 1929, so acting work was less abundant. Still, she had a name and a great resume. Despite being blacklisted from the Guild and struggling with ongoing melancholy, Peg's career was healthy from 1928 to 1932, until Peg was 24. Performing with the Guild had boosted her acclaim, landing her a yearly contract to perform summers at a resort in Maine, plus prestigious New York shows during the year. Things were going okay, and she was getting back on her feet. Unfortunately, 1932 presented a wave of challenges to the 24-year-old. First, she was cast in a fairly prestigious New York show that was highly anticipated. But due to mismanagement of funds and an alcoholic executive, the show unexpectedly closed weeks early. Actors fought it legally, but the courts determined that the company only had to pay out two weeks of the 10 to 20 week salary that had been promised. On top of the lost wages, the casting season for other shows in New York was over. Peg was quickly out of work and out of money. Peg's mood was still fragile after her divorce with Robert and loss of the Guild contract, along with the complete loss of her savings after bailing Robert out so many times. The show closing sent her spiraling. The only thing she had to look forward to was her summer in Maine. But she desperately wanted more stable work for the rest of the year. She got a new opportunity that summer. She was offered a film role by a major motion picture company, RKO. In a post-Depression America, movies were known to have more money and steadier work than theater. But to participate, she'd have to break her contract with her steady summer show, her only source of financial stability. Peg decided it was worth the risk. So in May of 1932, Peg packed her bags and headed back to Los Angeles excited to see her family and try the movies. Her aunt and uncle noticed she would still sink into depression, but hoped the new Hollywood work would get her back on her feet. Peg also started horseback riding again, something that had helped her handle dark moods in her youth. But her esteem hit another low in May, when she found out that her ex-husband had just sold a play and was experiencing a resurgence in his acting career. 
She, meanwhile, was broke and uncertain in her career. Friends also noted that Peg was quite distraught that Robert's third marriage was going swimmingly. He and his wife apparently got on well and were both successful actors. It was the life Peg had dreamed of when she married him, only someone else was getting it. Peg might have been able to resist fixating on these failures if work had gone well. But movie sets were rough on Peg. She wasn't used to Hollywood divas or being treated like a novice. The dozen other girls on her movie, 13 Women, saw her as an uppity British girl from the East who hadn't learned her place. After all, this was her first film. Peg, as always, acted professionally, but the cattiness and bullying took a toll on her emotionally. To make matters worse, once filming wrapped in June, she had no other work booked. Long days with nothing to do left her to stew and replay her failures over and over. Peg tried to keep her chin up, and her aunt and uncle encouraged her to stay busy and enjoy the time off. Peg auditioned constantly, and Uncle Charles reached out to contacts to try to arrange work for Peg. Three months passed with no job opportunities. Then, in September, early reviews for the film she'd worked on started to come in. Critics were panning the film, and Peg's part had been cut down from 13 minutes to barely four. As a result, it was unlikely she'd be asked to do more film work. In Peg's mind, she had given up theater and the one standing summer gig she had in order to take a risk on film, and she had failed. The New York Theater Guild had blacklisted her, and Broadway had presumably forgotten about her by now. In her eyes, there were no opportunities left. Peg withdrew further. Worried, her Aunt Jane and Uncle Charles encouraged her to stay strong and keep busy. She took to taking long walks and spending evenings socializing, putting on a convincing facade of managing her depression. The actress was so convincing that her uncle didn't think anything of it when she left for a walk on Friday, September 16, 1932. She'd mentioned she was going to run to the drugstore and then meet up with some friends. He and Jane believed Peg was finally getting better. Charles wasn't even worried when she didn't return by sunset. She was an adult, even if she was only 24 years old, and he was happy to see her out of the house. Peg, unfortunately, had not gone out to have a good time. She had reached the lowest point of her life and committed suicide on Friday evening. It's unclear if she had planned to kill herself before leaving the house, but before passing, she did pen a note. It read, I am afraid, I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. P.E. She left the note in her bag with her sweater and shoes. Then, as she threatened to do four years ago, she climbed a work ladder to the top of the 44-foot Hollywood sign. Peg threw herself from the top of the H to the canyon below. Police later said she would have died instantly on impact from the fall. Peg went undiscovered for over a day. Her uncle began to worry when she didn't come home the next evening. He and Jane began calling her friends. No one had seen her. They tried to stay calm, but they both began to suspect something was very wrong. On September 18th, two days after Peg left the house, an anonymous woman called the L.A. Police Department. She was hiking near the Hollywood sign and had noticed a woman's jacket, purse, and shoes. There was a suicide note in the purse, and the woman thought she could see a body below the sign. The police recovered the body of a blonde woman and ran her suicide note in the paper in hopes that someone would identify her. When Peg's Aunt Jane saw the article, she wailed so loudly the neighbors came to check on her. The whole family was at a loss. They'd thought Peg had been getting better, but really, she'd only gotten better at hiding the depths of her sadness. Charles and Jane hosted the funeral in Hollywood four days after Peg's death. 
her body was cremated and sent back to Ohio to lie beside her father and stepmother, both also gone before their time. Peg's story was almost immediately skewed by the papers, which claimed Peg had taken her own life due to a failed career. In reality, Peg had been quite successful in theater and made a decent start in film. She was beautiful, talented, and only 24. She'd have had a long life and career ahead of her. Peg's real obstacle was the trauma she experienced in her youth, first from losing her birth mother from abandonment, then her stepmother to disease, then her father to tragedy. On top of it all, her marriage had been abusive and led to her losing her contract with her dream employer, the New York Theater Guild. Peg got back on her feet, but when she took a risk on a film that flopped, she saw herself as a complete failure with nowhere to go. Hollywood's an uncertain place, and its highs and lows can compound the risks for anyone who struggles with their mental health. Unbeknownst to Peg, she had other offers on the way. An offer for another film role arrived just days after her death, along with a potential play in New York that fall. In all likelihood, Peg's death wasn't really about her career. She showed signs of what is today considered depression and PTSD. Untreated, these conditions likely led to feelings of helplessness and suicide. Ironically, and somewhat cruelly, it was her death that made her world famous. Besides appearing in the papers for her sensationalized demise, Peg became a popular ghost story and was often referred to as the Hollywood Girl Ghost. In the 1940s, about 10 years after Peg's death, the H on the Hollywood sign collapsed from disrepair. Hikers and tourists almost immediately began reporting visions of a ghostly blonde woman in 1930s clothing who disappeared when they went close to her. Many of the ghost sightings include a strong smell of gardenias, which is said to be Peg's preferred perfume. The urban legend grew, saying Peg refused to leave Hollywood even in death. Peg unfairly became a symbol for failed Hollywood dreams. In reality, she'd done everything right and had a budding acting career. It's hard to say if anything could have prevented her death, or maybe she was, sadly, destined to succumb to the trauma that had shaped her. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back with more on The Dark Side of Hollywood. You can find all of ParCast shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>